Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. In our podcast, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis, we'll be presenting a series of interviews featuring federal executives overseeing various programs and overcoming challenges with innovation. Here's your host, Tom Temin. The Homeland Security Department has its own in-house think tank. It's called the Science and Technology Directorate. For an update on the top concerns and what's going on these days, I spoke with DHS Undersecretary Dr. Dmitry Kuznetsov. As a scientist whose work in operational environments, DHS is a fascinating place to work. It has 22 different uh, components. It it is uh, largely operational. And doing science in the place where you're pulled by today's urgency is is a place where you really have to work hard to, to both be relevant today but create the latitude to think long-term. And, and that's especially to, uh, important today. It's a changing world. Things are happening so rapidly today in, in ways that we have not seen before, not only from the point of view of, of emerging technologies, it's, it's true geopolitically how the world is changing. And then in the background, there is extreme variation in weather and climate. And so the world is, is changing in a nonlinear way, I would say. And so while we have to be incrementally relevant in making things better in the models we do today, science and technology also has to provide some clarity into whether tomorrow is gonna be different and whether the models we have today and how we approach everything we do scale to where the world is going. And so that's a great place to be because there is so much demand signal from the different parts of, of the uh, agency to help with things today. But making sure there's enough conversation to look to the future is, is also the, the, the balancing act we have to manage. Now, I have been to some of the science and technology subsections where there are federal employees doing direct research on detection technologies and so forth. What's the balance between what research is done by in-house staff versus what you fund, I'm presuming, through grants and maybe contracts? Well, I don't know if I have the precise percentage breakdown. We, we have a, a fairly large contractor force. Uh, but we also have federal employees at labs, uh, you know, from uh, Plum Island to our, our transportation security lab, where we do high explosives work as well. Uh, uh, but we have places like um, uh, our, our biosecurity facilities uh, up in Frederick that that have contractor support staff. And so it, it is a blended mix uh, depending on the kinds of, of specialty needs you have because it's not always easy to get specialists into federal service, whereas it is easier to pull scientists into laboratories as contractors, and you can be more flexible with the, uh, with the evolution of fields and how the demands change. And so we, we do maintain a balance, um, and, and it's important to have that. Sure. And let's Given what you said about the background, the linear or the nonlinear change in the world and the need to provide clarity to operators as to where they might need to go next, what are your top research priorities right now? What's going on? It's a big question first. You know, beyond the horizon, when I, when I look at uh, how the world is changing on one side and I look at the space, for example, of emerging technologies, it's it's really an unprecedented moment we find ourselves in. You look back in, in history and, and, and there isn't a place where so many technologies impacting all aspects of the lives have happened simultaneously uh, in a way that technologies are accessible by the masses. 
And it's not just drones, you know, UAS, and then the countering them. It's not just gene editing, which is done in high school these days. It's it's nanosciences. It's uh, additive manufacturing, also done as uh, home projects. It's it's artificial intelligence and machine learning. It is quantum technologies, which are a little more specialized, but don't require big capital investments. It is it is dozens of these places where stuff is happening, where you have to sit back and reflect and say, well, can I draw on these to help us with the kinds of demanding pressures we have in today's job? That's not an easy question, uh, but uh, it is a, a place we're working at right now as we look at the priorities. So on one hand, in, in all the operational parts of the agency, we have existing technologies. We work very closely with all of them to say, how can we do any of this better? How do we identify your priorities? How do we see if there are existing companies that can do it or if uh, incremental or, or investment by S&T can advance this so you can deploy it? That's great. But at the other end, how do we think about this space and the opportunities it's producing so that we have more options in our space to solve problems? Because if the only answer we have is to throw more people uh, you know, to all our problems and surge as as the only means to to do that. I think we've we've hindered our ability to innovate, and we should at least have more opportunities to to have on the table. And science can open that up. So science and technology, then, the, as a directorate, has a fairly wide range from applied research toward improving this particular function here and now to bordering maybe on basic research when you're looking at what might be the next total approach once this one scales out, for example? Yes, you know, science and technology. So in my worldview of this, um, they're, they're intertwined, but they're distinct and, and they can work independently of each other. It is not that science leads technology. They, they really live in separate worlds. You can have technologies that exist without science, like I would say AI today, you can have technology, yeah, you can have science that uh, doesn't have any technology or it's only emergent. And the quantum space is a great example. Finally, there's this ecosystem today, but the science is 100 years old. And so the technology really followed the science. And there are places where science exists without any technology. And so it, these are, have to looked at separately. I see science about decisions you know, closing important knowledge gaps, adding clarity to where we can go in the future. What should we be worried about? Technology is about actions. How do we enable those who need to rely on it? How do we solve problems? And these are really separate worlds and you have to think and plan on them uh, in, in the right balance. So you know where you're headed, but you deliver things today. All right, and the idea that an organization can do anything, but it can't do everything. So somehow you have to winnow down to the projects and scientific and engineering and technology endeavors that you can afford and that, you know, in the appropriator's wisdom that you'll have. So do you get your demand signals pretty much from the operational parts of DHS? And then so that, that is, a, you know, a, a, a great question, and it has a, a couple of different parts, because one of the kind of implicit things in what you're saying is that there is a private sector space to carry 
the weight of the technology into the future. So as it evolves, the software is updated, the technologies are updated, the performance increases, whatever measure you have, those are things that the government should not be doing. So you have to have the lash up with the private sector and a handoff on some path of commercialization. And so the commercialization part and the partnerships with the private sector are, are really key to that. So it's not just identifying what the needs are uh, from the uh, components, you know, what uh, Customs and Border Protection need or TSA or, or FEMA and, and so on. Uh, it is trying to address whether there is a long-term viability for this technology that can be maintained, upgraded, afforded, that can live in the private sector. So there is a handoff of whatever is developed. And, and creating this innovation base for Homeland Security is really a priority here at DHS, certainly for the secretary, and it's something we're trying hard to do. So we get our priorities uh, from the components directly. Coast Guard will tell us, for example, these are the top uh, you know, X number of things that we worry about. And, and we have teams that lash up with teams from every component. They work throughout the year. They identify priorities. We dissect them at SNT. We look to see which ones of those are amenable to technology solutions, which one of these exist already as solutions. So we can simply connect the dots and say, here, talk to these guys, which one require additional investment to perhaps get them ready. And then we get on schedules and we deliver these. At the end of the day, we really have to worry about the, the, the future technologies and that they have a livelihood of their, their own. And, and there you have to be really lashed up with the private sector. Right. So a good example to go back quite a few decades is the magnetometer, the metal detector. This yeah. was something developed in the 70s, you know, in response to the hijackings of airlines. I'm right. old enough to remember getting on a plane when they <laughs> didn't exist. And now that is something that is used in every venue you can imagine. Something that had a huge commercial footprint even beyond the needs of the FAA and the airlines. That's the kind of thing you mean? Uh, yes. And, and uh, you'll see when you go through uh, most airports today, the CT scanners, you know, again, it, it's not that CT was developed for us, but putting them in the profile and training them to detect things like high explosive and weapons requires the, the technology push for the unique domains that uh, we have at DHS. And so we, we can take existing things and, and cobble together uh, the kinds of things that are needed broadly uh, and, and then hope that the private sector will run with those and, and improve them over time, which is what happens. Because that re really requires a pretty deft touch, if you think about it. You don't want to get, as you say, way out in front of what might be commercially viable technology so that the government ends up with something unique and expensive, and it's only the government. Yet you don't want to lag a generation or two behind what is in the private sector. You kind of want to be step by step by step, almost dancing with commercial needs. Yes. And, I, and I think that is harder today than it was even just five years ago and certainly more than 10 years ago. Uh, because of the, the, the many different technologies and how people are blending these together to create entirely new functionality. Um, and, you know, on one hand, we have to keep pace with adversaries. And so we have to be armed with the right kinds of technologies to counter things, you know, at borders, uh, with smuggling, with cryptocurrency and fentanyl and child exploitation. And so you, you have to have the right foresight that even if you're not in these technologies, your adversaries are, can you keep pace? 
Can you get ahead of them? And and so it, it does take, it, it is a dance, as you said. It's not always obvious how to do that, but it is an important part of the day job. My guest is Dr. Dmitry Kuznetsov, the Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Science and Technology, part of our occasional series, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology. We'll return with more of the interview after this short break. I'm Tom Tamman. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more. Welcome back to our interview with Dr. Dmitry Kuznetsov, the Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Science and Technology, part of an occasional series tackling government challenges through science and technology. I'm Tom Temin, and I wanted to ask you about the human capital side of the Science and Technology Directorate. What are your human capital needs, both in maybe the support areas, but also in the scientific and application and technology areas? I think uh, so far we're doing okay. You know, again, the, the blend of uh, federal and contractor workforce is is good for us. Uh, from the DHS Act, we also have uh, unique authorities to work with Department of Energy National Laboratories, uh, which really cover a, a broad landscape of skill sets, specialties, uh, and, and unique facilities. And so we really have at our fingertips quite a unique set of expertise. You know, if we need them in federal ranks, it's always hard. It's hard today. It's been hard in the past. It's not special to us, but we do feel that pain. You know, it can take uh, extended amounts of time to get the right people into jobs for that reason. But we do have a lot of latitude in terms of getting the expertise from people with clearances who understand what's going on in the world to help us. And so, you know, we're, we're in a pretty good place, I would say. We can't really have a conversation about science and technology and research without talking about artificial intelligence. And this has really come on strong. And as you pointed out earlier, there's nothing new about it. I mean, the concepts go back to the 40s, really. Yeah. Now we have processing power and data sufficient that it can start to take real form. What's the thinking? What are you doing in science and technology directorate that can contribute to the artificial intelligence thinking and deployment? You know, they're the obvious places that uh, one thinks about, you know, can we do what we're doing efficiently, more efficiently? Can we uh, lessen the burden on people on more mundane tasks or tedious tasks or, or, or things that uh, are better done in, in automated fashions? You know, there are places where you want to help. So, you know, we, we monitor, for example, the dark web. We look at uh, where, where uh, you know, child exploitation happens. Um, we have people that uh, look at war crimes videos because you have to know who to put on no-fly lists. You want to make sure they don't come uh, into the country. And, and so there are people that look at content which is, is just horrific uh, as part of the job at, at looking at the real world out there uh, and ways to somehow automate the extraction of content, for example, so that uh, the stresses on people can be minimized is is really important because the crimes are real, the impacts of, uh, on people are real. And any way you can automate 
the that workload and minimize the demands on people is another place where you know we have to be working hard and, and so you know wherever you look there's okay can we do the job better so i but at the same time there are other things i worry about you know i i think of the world of the future everything you're going to buy in the future is going to be smarter you you know Apple released its smart headsets, its glasses, but you know already coffee mugs and shoes and and whatever you want are going to ha- have chips in them if you want. The functionality people want, the drives, the the commercialization is functionality. You want things talking to each other, so it tells you something you want to know. Um, and so there is whether it's smart cities, whether it's a smarter infrastructure, we're we're heading into a world where it'll be unavoidable to have technology over the, the next generation of next networks, 6G and 7G, that everything will be intertwined, more data than people can comprehend. And, and so you will have this machine-to-machine communication, which we will want, but then at the same time you say, well, what are the consequences of that? And, and so the space of adversarial AI is something I think about a lot because Unlike cyber security, where you know the goal is uh, of an adversary is to actually inject code and instruction into a system, in the AI space, you don't even have to touch a system to subvert its intent. Uh, there are ways to simply go around it, and there there are all kinds of innovative ways people are finding to say, "Look how I can fool this smart system." And so the question is for the work we're, world we're heading into: How do we think about? protecting the nation, you know, part of the mandate of DHS in this future world. And we have a little bit of latitude and time to think about it. So I think about that as well. You know, where are we going? What should we be worried about? And and what are the consequences? Uh, how do we become more prepared? And so AI is really such a, an encompassing area, but it has really important forward-looking pieces and really important today pieces. Sure. And would it be too limiting then to say that that fits into the overall thinking or orientation of science and technology, which is detection and preparedness? Or is that too yes. limiting two words for you? Uh, detection uh, maybe is is uh, limited. Preparedness is something I'm big on. You know, I, I repeat a lot and people hear me talk about this probably uh, roll their eyes again. You know, I'm I'm not a fan of strategic plans um, in, a, in a world that I view as nonlinear and changing in ways that we can't predict. It doesn't make sense to me to, to have a, a noted endpoint of what we're trying to go towards when I don't know what we're trying to go towards. So I think about preparedness. And so I'm glad you brought up that word. How can we be more versatile towards a changing world? And, and it could mean a lot of things. It might be that we need to push for open standards in the technologies we buy or, or in the data that is communicated. Uh, it might be uh, with norms. It, it could be with governance. It, it could be in, in how we create things. So maybe our thinking is more modular and able to adapt so we don't have to re- recreate anything, but we can build on to where we are in ways that can be more responsive to changes as they come. So I think there's a lot to think about in this space that is is fascinating. Yeah, interesting about your feelings on strategic planning. I guess maybe if you could have any virtue in it, it would just be simply as a way to make sure that you can 
as an organization respond to that black swan so that the strategy is to not have a strategy but to be prepared for what gets presented to you yeah so a preparedness plan rather than a strategic plan uh, so at least you have the elements of, of responsiveness and and being able to turn on a dime uh, if you need uh, and and that takes working with the private sector. It works, you know. It takes uh, working with standards organizations. It takes working with with many uh, to to help enable that kind of a future. Sure. And while we have you, you should give us the quick biography of your own background. You know, it's uh, I I never quite like talking about. It. I, I'm an academic by training. I I'm a theoretical physicist. I, I spent my first career in academia, uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, but I decided to come into government uh, just uh, right around 9-11. And uh, I ended up uh, in the uh, National Nuclear Security Administration. I ran the uh, research and development programs for the U.S. nuclear weapons stockpile. Eventually, as chief scientist for the NNSA, uh, and then a deputy undersecretary for AI and technology, and uh, many different roles over there. But Broadly, uh, second career was at the uh, Department of Energy, which I greatly enjoyed. Um, and and now I'm at Homeland Security, which is uh, a remarkable honor. NNSA is kind of the ultimate theoretical challenge because you can't <laughs> blow up a weapon, but you somehow have to know it's ready and would work and what the effects of it would be 30, 40 years later when it just sits there. Yeah, you, you, see, you see challenges there. You have to decide whether things will operate as intended not fail in any ways and you can't touch them i mean you can't uh, test them and so yeah how you do that requires a lot of science and technology and prediction uh and understanding the confidence you have in predictions uh are are really important problems um and it's done very well there and uh and, and there's a lot to be learned from how the nation has invested in doing that work and final thoughts on the ultimate challenge that you have as director, really, as the head of science and technology directorate, of staying agile and making sure that the agency moves where it needs to move in this kind of fluid but nonlinear world? You know, I think part of it is how you innovate. That's really what I think about a lot here. And it's not just within our, our federal ranks. Uh, it's it's with the private sector. It's, it's kind of how do we create this ecosystem uh, where we can create things that will be important to the mission and and finding ways to unleash people because ideas come from everywhere and and trying to find ways to have those conversations today i think is also challenged with where the workforce is i i think uh, ideation a lot of this i have found in conversations with people and pushing off ideas and and looking critically and having those hard conversations that uh, my idea is better than yours. Yours is, is bad. And here's why, you know, we needed some of these because that's how good ideas are born. And it's hard when it's hard to do over Zoom meetings, I got to say. And so, you know, I, I sometimes worry about how this country is innovating in kind of the place we find ourselves post COVID. And so that's one of the challenges I have. There are there's a lot of remarkable people we have passionate about the mission, looking to make an impact companies in the same place, how do we bring these together in the right way, given where the country is and even where the world is today? Dr. Dmitry Kuznetsov, the Undersecretary of Homeland Security for Science and Technology. You've been listening to our occasional show, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology. To hear this interview again or share it with colleagues, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Insights. 
I'm Tom Temin. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Tackling Government Challenges Through Science and Technology, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network.